0: Merry Christmas from a history of Christian theology I'm Chad Kim uh, this week we will be bringing you our live broadcast which will include Tom Velasco and Trevor Adams as usual uh, after about an hour into it we will be ta- we take questions from the audience so this episode will be quite a bit longer than the normal episode it, It'll be about an hour and a half and the first five minutes or so are an introduction that we give while at the district coffee house in Boise Idaho. And then after that, uh, we go into Tertullian's um, Contra uh, against Praxeus. And then finally, we take questions from the audience. And that's around uh, the fifty-five minute 55 or so. You might have to turn up the device that you're listening to the podcast on. Sorry about that inconvenience. We'll try to get the audio back on track for our next episode, which will be coming next week. Thank you for listening. And please check us out on our Facebook page at... Facebook.com slash A History ahistoryofchristiantheology.
1: Hi right, everybody, I think we're going to go ahead and get started. Um, just want to thank you all for joining us this evening for our live recording of the History of Christian Theology. I'm Tom Velasco, and I am actually introducing the guy who's going to introduce the podcast, which I did mostly because I think uh, that most of you probably know personally, at a personal level, that sounded terrible, rather than Chad or Trevor. Chad lives in St. Louis, so maybe that's... Anyway, I'm going to introduce Chad Kim, who is going to introduce our podcast. I just did. This is Chad Kim. Very good. Yeah, so
0: I'm Chad Kim, and I used to teach at the Ambrose School of Tom and Trevor. Um, And so we, basically last year, uh, we decided at the end of the year uh, that we wanted to keep talking about stuff that we had talked about in the period in between classes when we it's had got to lunch, um, and so I was like, hey, I'm going to read a whole bunch of this stuff, let's all read it together and have a conversation about it, um, hoping to sort of introduce to as many people as possible uh, a study of the development of Christian theology, so um, it gets pretty confusing, um, so today we're going to talk about the Trinity, uh, which is a very difficult topic, um, and so we wanted to kind of I think our hope for, for us was that as many Christians as possible could get to know um, some of these more difficult aspects of, of the Christian faith and where they came from and so why and why we say things like the Trinity um, and and so Tertullian uh, is who we're going to be reading tonight. Tertullian is from a place called Carthage in North Africa um, and so uh, I think it's modern day Tunisia. Um, and it is, uh, he's the first writer that we have who writes in the Latin language. Um, and so he lived roughly 150 AD to either 220 or 240 AD. I think most people think 220. So he actually lived quite a long life. Um, so we're talking about 200 years or so after the death of Christ uh, is, is actually writing. Uh, we wanted oh uh, I meant to say uh, I wanted to thank the district coffee house. Sorry, I meant to do this first. Uh, say saying thanks to the district coffee house for hosting us, uh, for Calvary Chapel for who I guess owns the coffee house, um, and for all of their support,
1: uh, for Chris and Oscar, uh, and uh, Sam and uh Tucker, Tucker uh, who's not here. And these guys all always get the chairs get everything going. Well, he, has good, he has a good reason. For- so we are thankful to
0: them and to the Ambrose School, kind of honest us Uh And it's just a general disclaimer. Uh, what we're about to is say is amazing? not necessarily uh, the theology or thoughts of either uh, Calvary Chapel or the Ambrose School. Um, so, I, you know, don't hold them to things that, like, I say or something like that. Uh, I'm not going to say anything too wild, I like don't think. Uh, but if I do, don't punish them. You can attack me later. Um and so I will take Social media. I will take full responsibility basically. Yeah. <laughs> um I don't know if I stand up
2: all the to the crowd, but I might. Um,
0: and also Tertullian is a figure um who was condemned as a heretic. Um and so we will talk about what that means. Um so it's it's also not necessarily the case uh, that the Christian Church endorses all the things, well, that the, that Orth- the Orthodox Church uh, agrees with all the things that he says. Uh, so we're going to look at what he says, because he's the first one uh, to use the term Trinitas in Latin, where we get the word Trinity. Um, and so we thought this would be a fascinating topic uh, to discuss the wide broadcast on the 30th episode, uh, the first time this word here. Um, he also uses the word New Testament for the first time. So we're talking, again, about 200 years after uh, Christ, and this is the first, first writer that we have that references the no Testament to the New Testament uh, in Latin. So, yeah. so you want to say something? Should so we
3: have Trevor introduce himself? Uh, I'm Trevor, and I was a student at the Institute Institute Institute. for some um, reason. They wanted me to be on this podcast.
1: <laughs> uh, <laughs> Because I got a degree in philosophy, so for some reason I'm not theology. Which you will find that all of us will shamelessly plug philosophy as a part of uh, this podcast because we are indeed lovers of philosophy so and theology, which in general uh, Christians are not always big fans of. Sometimes I don't understand why, but uh, we do try to plug that as much as possible. Definitely, theology is at the end I'd like to say something real quick before we jump into textual stuff. Just thinking, one of the things I know that we talked about that I thought would be super important for everybody to really consider as we and jump into the text, as we start talking about this guy, Tertullian. I, you know, when I talk to people, in general, I find a couple of things that, um, that kind of plague Christians when it comes to the issue of the Trinity. Number one, a lack of an awareness of where and when the term comes from. And this is especially important because... People from other doctrinal backgrounds may come to them and say, oh, the idea of the Trinity came late. It came like 300 years after Jesus was born or after he died and resurrected. They'll say that wasn't something early Christians believed. And so that's kind of one of the things that I know a lot of Christians wrestle with. They ask themselves, when did this idea of the Trinity come about? Because they're early to say, listen, not everybody, or Christians didn't believe that Jesus was God. And they didn't believe that there was a Trinitarian or that God was a Trinity. So first of all, just kind of up front, that's false. And if you want to hear like evidence for that, you can listen to our past episodes, which if you haven't heard those, I encourage you to check out. Because we have literally read every Christian theologian whose writings survive up till, up till the year 200 by this point. And every one of them endorses some view of the Trinity. None of them deny Jesus' divinity. None of them deny that Jesus is Christ. What happens is people usually hear something like, Hey, the doctrine of the Trinity was not confirmed until er, 325 AD, which is 300 years after Jesus resurrected. But the problem is, is although that's kind of true, it's a little misleading. Because what happened in 325 AD is a whole bunch of Christian bishops got together, and they said, look, we have problems because people are challenging accepted doctrine We've got to write out what the official stance is of the church, and we've got to put it into law. Which they did, but that doesn't mean that they first came up with it then, okay? So that's the first thing. The second thing I really want you guys to consider is this. That as I talk about the Trinity people, what I find is that on the whole, in general, Christians in the 21st century and evangelical churches, they don't actually know what the doctrine of the Trinity is they actually get it wrong. And this is, I think, one of the interesting things. This book we're reading is called Ad Praxis*, which
0: is a Latin phrase that means against praxis." Chad just said. Contra praxis."
1: Oh, sorry, I have it in English. Just so you know, Chad always has it in Latin and Greek. And then literally right here, it's all in Latin. He's the smart one. True. Um, Uh, So contra Praxius, I I apologize, I stand corrected, against Praxius, um, the thing is, is that Praxius kind of believes what I think most 21st century evangelical Christians believe. So what that means is, the view that he's going to be condemning is the view that so many Christians today actually believe. He's going to be so. Just what I would encourage you guys to do is to stop and go. Yeah, what do really I believe? I and then I as the a guy, he's going to be. Just so you guys know, I won't point fingers. But every time I've run this test with people, every time I've said, "Hey, there's this one view that everybody condemned as a heresy," I always have this huge percentage of people go, "That's what I believe." So the actual doctrine of the Trinity that's taught here might surprise you. Okay, so that's kind of just something to keep in mind. But anyway, I'll hand it back. I didn't even tell you guys this, but. I remember a
3: freshman year your high school when I woke up my master year, like, you're a heretic. I'm like, great. <laughs> <laughs> you said, I mean, you said your view. Well, yeah, this is like my view, and I was a modalist. And, uh, so. Yeah. Anyway. So,
0: yeah, so we've used a few terms. Um, one of them is modalist. So that is the view of Praxeus. Um, so Praxeus basically believes um, that God the Father suffered on the cross, um, that there is no distinction between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It's all one thing. It's all the same person. There's no distinction. That is modalism. Um, sometimes Jesus might look to have, or sometimes the, uh, God will look look like Jesus. Sometimes God will look like the Holy Spirit. Sometimes God looks like God the Father. But it's all the same thing. Uh, there's no distinction at all. And that is what Praxeas believes. Sometimes it's be called Atropossianism. Which is just a big word that means God the Father suffered on the cross. And Tertullian says, We don't believe that, I don't believe that, that is heresy. Um, So that is the modalist perspective. So basically, orthodoxy um, is that God exists in one substance and three persons
1: three distinct persons. One substance, one God, three different persons. Not not three beings. Not three three beings. beings, And not uh, one person. And not one person. But three persons. But three persons. And one being. Sorry, Jim. And I mean, you can
0: tell already why this is going to get
1: confusing.
0: Um, And so we're trying, I I hope that we're clear. Um, And basically, our format for this evening uh, is going to be we're going to try to do sort of like we would normally do in a podcast for about 40, 45 minutes or so, and then we're going to open up to questions. Um, so hopefully this can be interactive, that you guys can you know, say, hey, wait a minute, tell us what the heresy was again, or whatever. Um, and, and we'll take those questions in a little bit. So anyway, so that's, so that's modalism, that's orthodoxy. There is another view um, that, that comes up later, that we'll talk about later in the podcast, but, uh, or in further podcasts. But this is called the Arian view, where uh, God the Father is distinct from God the Son, and He created God the Son, um, And that is also heresy. That's kind of the other extreme. So oftentimes, in, as theology develops, you'll read someone like Tertullian, and he's got different people on different sides of the argument. And he's sort of saying, well, you think this, and this guy thinks this, but the truth is kind of right here in the middle. Um, so it's always helpful to have an idea of what the different conversations are going on. So you can kind of see, all right, where does Tertullian fit? In this broader conversation. Um, so, Tertullian is going to espouse the view that looks pretty similar to what Thomas referenced. So, if, you, if any of you go to a church or have ever been to a church where they recite the Creed, the Nicene Creed is basically the statement that of what Christians believe about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God, God the Son uh, is begotten of the Father eternally. Um, and God the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father the video play and of the Son in the West.
1: One thing I would a couple things I would add too. So getting back to talking about modalism there for a second. Uh, one thing I want to clarify for you guys often when I tell people about modalism, that is that God so the modalist view God is one God, one being, who is one person, just one personality. And that view as Chad said me is that He's sometimes the Father, He's sometimes the Son, sometimes the Holy Spirit. That's one way to describe it. But the thing you guys need to understand is, is that a modalist believes that he can manifest in all those forms at the same time. So, it's called modalism because he takes a mode. He has a mode, he's the Father. And in another mode, he's the Son. In another mode, he's the Holy Spirit. But on this view, God sends, the Father sends himself to earth. As the Father, he prays to the Father. And he dies, and he resurrects, and he rises again, and he sits at his own right hand. That's the modalist view. And when I say that I feel like a lot of 21st century Christians believe that, I think I would encourage you guys to stop and just think about, and please don't, like if you do this, just you know, I often do this too, so I'm not doing this as a criticism, but I want you to listen sometimes to how we pray. We often, when we pray, we say something like, Dear Father, and Jesus and Father and Jesus as if we're speaking to the same person. Now I don't really necessarily have a problem with that, but I do think it's interesting, or interesting I don't know, one thing you will note is that if you were to kind of grow up in the church prior to the year 1940, you just would have never done that. Like it just would have never happened. Christians would have always prayed to the Father in the name of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. They all would have worshipped Jesus. Jesus is God. He absolutely is God. There's one God. But there was this very strong sense that the persons of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit were distinct. Which, and um, Chad mentioned a moment ago, that if you grew up in a certain kind of church, like a more uh, formal traditional church, like a Roman Catholic church, an Anglican church, Methodist, you guys would have every week recited the Nicene Creed. And when you recite the Nicene Creed over and over again you're actually stating what you believe about the Trinity. So in the 1940s and 50s, modern evangelicals really wanted to divorce themselves from the history of the church a bit, not because they didn't value what the history taught, but because they didn't want anybody telling them what they had to believe. They wanted to say, we believe the Bible, we listen to the Bible only. And so it was motivated by a good thing. It was a good motivation, but nonetheless, when you do that, you divorce yourself from a tradition that builds upon itself, and from these distinguishing marks, which oftentimes are hard to pick out in the Bible. Does that make sense? Uh,
0: so uh, let's let's get into Tr- uh, Tertullian's uh, argument here. Uh, I'm looking at chapter 2, and I'm going to read, sort of, maybe the first place where he really um, describes this uh, use of the word trinity. Um, so this is chapter 2 towards the end. Um, While the mystery of The dispensation is still guarded, which distributes the unity into a trinity, placing in their order the three persons, right? This is orthodoxy. There are three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Three, however, not in condition, but in degree, not in substance, but in form, not in power, but in aspect. One substance, uh, and then he goes on. Uh, so basically, reckon under the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit so in this way, this is basically the first time that a theologian is trying to come to terms with how the scripture talks about God, uh, which looks like three persons, and so like in, in Matthew 28 basically uh, Jesus gives the great commission, he says go out and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and so now theologians are trying to explain, okay, how is it That there's a God who's in heaven, and there's a person who's Jesus Christ, and there's this Holy Spirit. How are they all united? How are they one? And so, Tertullian, the first time, he says, let's call it a trinitas, a triunitas, three in one. And that's where this word basically comes from. And so, for the next 1800 years, um, Christians have used this same phrase to, to put a name to what they recognize in Scripture. One thing that I know that we all liked about reading Tertullian is Tertullian is writing in North Africa. Um, he's probably Roman. He's probably not uh, dark-skinned or anything, um, just that's a curiosity. Um, but he is, I don't, know, well, I don't know, because he's from Africa.
2: Um, but anyway, so he's North, he's North
0: African. Um, and... Um, so anyway, but he writes, and the way that he writes, the way that he argues, actually looks very Western. So if you've been listening to our podcasts, we've been discussing Clement, right? And so Clement looks really Greek, um, and he talks a lot about Plato, and it gets really confusing, and uh, <laughs> Ben loves it. Um, and uh, But Tertullian, is he's pretty straightforward, and so he says, look, let's just say it's three and one, all right? Uh, anyway, so I bring that
1: up to, to sort of say uh, that this is this is the first place where we get this. any,
3: any comment
2: here? Well, you know, moving on. To well, don't move on, because I, I, I have
1: happen. something to oh, say, actually. Yes, but just thinking about this also, because another criticism you often hear, I think, is people will say, you know the word Trinity doesn't appear in the Bible. And for some people, that freaks them out, right? But the thing is, there are a lot of words that don't appear in the Bible. I don't think, and one thing just to kind of settle down with that is, just because something doesn't appear in the Bible, and I think you guys, when you think about it, will see this as obvious, doesn't make it not true. It doesn't make it not important. Okay? Um, The word car does not exist in the Bible. That doesn't mean cars don't exist. Uh, The term Trinity was a useful term, and it was meant to be given specifically to kind of create like a, I mean, it was really kind of a metaphor that he's doing. He's saying, look, we've got this weird conundrum where we're, Pushing three things into one, and it's something that wouldn't make sense in a normal, uh, in normal discourse. But with God, it, it's it's just different. He has a different. He's a different kind of being, and so yes, he and everybody will acknowledge the word didn't exist before him. But I mean, if you think about it, how many times have you heard a preacher or a teacher of some sort introduce some clever word, and it just kind of helps. It sticks with you. It helps to. It helps to explain something. You see, the thing about the Bible, what we only understand the Bible is. The Bible is not written as a theology textbook. It's not a thing that you open up and go, OK, what does the Bible say about the Trinity? And you turn back to the index and it says, turn to page 27, and you read it and go, OK, well, there we go. The Bible is a compilation of completely different kinds of writings, all inspired by God, but none of them are like a lecture format of what theology is. Instead, what we got to do is we've got to read it, and what you have in it is you have letters. Some of the letters are personal. Right? Some of the letters are literally from one individual to another, like 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, Philemon. It's one guy writing a letter to another guy. Sometimes it's a general letter from you know one guy to a group. Sometimes it's a history. It's, a, a, it's a, an accounting of things that happen. Um, so it, sometimes it's a song. The book of songs is nothing but a compilation of a bunch of songs. So these are inspired by God, but they were not meant to be a textbook, not in the way we think of it. Instead, what we have to do is, as we go through the scriptures, we mine from it the theological truths that are there. So, all of the things that we're going to talk about, or that we are talking about, I should say, concerning the Trinity, are things in the Bible. The Bible teaches us that there is one God. It's one of these things that it really drives home. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. And that has been something that has been the fundamental truth of all, of all Judaism and Christianity. But then you have... This thing that pops up in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. You're like, wait a minute. And then it says, and the Word was with God, which you're like, wait, how could you be God and be with God, especially if you're speaking about a Jewish, like from a Jewish perspective. And you have the Word Jesus praying to God, and you have the Word Jesus dying on the cross and crying out to God, saying, why did you forsake me? You have all these things, and you have to draw from it the truth and try to piece it together to make it make sense. Okay, um, and I have a thought as to why it's like that, but I'll get to that. Later. So um, Trevor has something you want to say. About oh A lot
3: of tables. Yeah, it makes you kind of brought up what I was going to say. It makes sense why I can say it's had this idea. I he mean, was kind of just like, look, you know, monotheism. That's clearly in the Old Testament, and we clearly are a Judeo Christian religion. You know, let's just make this simple. Let's you know, have one. Of all this extra talk, yeah, he just did it off the Father, or who we call the Father. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's intuitive, I guess, is, is the thing. Why why modalism even is often believed by people? who you have really thought, or, or thought to read or read some things that other people written like theology like this. So
0: to get into Praxeus's view, if you want to, if you have it with you, uh, we're gonna look at chapter twenty two for a minute. this is the crucial argument for Praxeus. So, like Tom said, uh, all of this theology basically comes from John. When we start talking about the Trinity, um, and the theologians are reading the Bible, usually John is one of the main passages. So, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Uh, The other one is Proverbs 8. Uh, We may deal with that a little less, Uh, but Praxeus uses this from uh, John 10, uh, 30, where he says, Uh, where Jesus actually says, I and my Father are one. And so Proxeus says, okay, there we go. It's one thing. Jesus says it. That settles it. I believe it, right, or whatever the bumper sticker is. Um, And and so he's like, we don't need to talk about this anymore. And, you know, we use this term heretic, by the way, just a little aside. Um, I, I mean, I'm sympathetic to people like Proxeus because... I think he's wrong, but he's just trying to understand what's going on. And after Tertullian gets pretty mad at him uses some harsh language, but in defense of Proxaius, he's like, well, I'm looking at the Bible, I see Jesus says this, I think this is
1: what it's saying. Yeah. Calling anybody a heretic is always kind of harsh, right? I mean, <laughs> if you've ever been called a heretic, it's a really unfortunate thing. It also, throughout most of, it also throughout kind of, most of history, has all these other things tied into it, things like, oh, you're going to burn in hell forever. Which are all very, like, scary notions. But I, I do appreciate that you say that, Chad, because one of the things I do love about the history of theology is that it really is people trying to wrestle with what the scriptures say. So when Praxius is sitting here making this claim that God is one God who is one person that takes different modes, he's just trying to make sense of what he's reading too, right? That's all these guys are trying to do. Now, I can't read his part. I mean, I do believe that there are people out there who do just want to lead people astray and who just want to kind of poison the well, but I really think he's just trying to figure out what's being said. So I know I myself wouldn't have, and Chad certainly wouldn't, and I'm sure Trevor too, wouldn't have as harsh of a a view of Praxeus as Tertullian does. In fact, one of my problems with Tertullian and some of the guys we've read is, they're a little too harsh, and I wish they'd just kind of calmed down a little bit.
0: (laughs) But, so it's interesting. So how he uses this in the Latin, uh, it actually says, I and the Father are one, unum. It's neuter. And so, Tertullian is speaking Latin, possibly translating the Greek into Latin. We're not sure, the Vulgate, if you've heard of that, will actually come in the fourth century, Jerome will write it, between fourth and the fifth century. Uh, so this is several hundred years before that. Uh, there were Latin translations before the Vulgate, which we call the Vetus Latina, uh, but we, it's not 100% sure if Tertullian was using that. He seems very familiar with the Greek language, so we think He was actually just translating the Greek. But in in Greek as well, it is unum, one neuter substance. And so in 22, his argument, so he says, Praxeis, you're wrong. They're not one thing. Or they're not one person, unus. They're not one masculine thing. They're unum, one neuter essence. Um, And that is where he goes on to explain, okay, yes, you have that one passage that makes it look like they're one. But if you take all the other passages, and he actually states this as well, he gives a little bit of a plan for doing theology. And he says, just because you have one obscure verse that makes it look this way, doesn't mean you should define all your theology by one verse. Um, And he says, and actually there's a pretty good explanation for why that one verse looks the way that it does. And it's because you're not reading it closely enough. You're reading it as, as if it's one man, unus, or one you know masculine thing, and he's saying no 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 one neuter essence in multiple persons, uh, and that's how he explains to Praxeus, You just have a misreading of that particular passage, um, and like like Tom said, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God. Um, these sorts of things. There are all these passages that where Jesus says, if you see me, you can see the Father also, another person, and he has a few other examples that are. Of he
1: quotes the bible all the time i mean he's just passage after passage after passage <laughs> to support his view and I, I i love that chad brought up that thing because that's one of his chief criticisms he says he says i'm gonna he actually at one point says i'm going to talk about the passages of scripture that raxius uses and he goes and there aren't many of them like that's <laughs> kind of this is his first thing like this guy doesn't really know the bible there's not a lot out there so i'm going to talk about the two or three that he uses and then I'm going to talk about all the passages that I have to support what I believe. And so that's kind of a big part of his approach. And, and he basically said, you just rip it out of context. You're just not understanding
3: the broader context. Which kind of goes to the what I take to be one of his arguments, which I guess we can just address now, which is him arguing from the dialogue between the persons of the scripture. So in 22, yeah. for example, just later yeah. in there, he goes, Definitely. I mean, yeah, we're yeah. talking about also goes, yeah, but also, John 8, 16, but I am the Father that sent me. And he's talking about the fact that um, however we have he declaring to be clearly in Scripture, and which I guess in Latin would be some fancy words. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, so the, the dialogue between the Christians, uh, that's, that's probably one of the more cheap arguments. So, yeah, chapter 5 is
0: actually where we get into this Um, so, alright, so, we're gonna dig a little deeper. Hold on to your hats. Um, so, uh, there's this passage where Tertullian tries to explain how the Logos, which is the Greek word, uh, for the, for the work, um, and that's what John uses in John 1. In the beginning was the Logos, was the word. And Tertullian's gonna try to explain how God existed in, uh, in, in multiple persons, uh, before the creation of So he actually says in 5, he says, you must needs speak it in, uh, let's see, whatever you think, there is a word. Whatever you conceive, there is a reason. You must speak it in your mind. And while you are speaking, you admit speech as an interlocutor with you, involved in which there is this very reason, whereby while in thought you are holding converse with your word, uh, you are, by reciprocal action, producing thought. By means of that converse with your word. So what does Tertullian say?
1: Actually, read the next line, because that's oh, actually... Sorry.
0: Thus, oh, yeah. Thus, in a certain sense, the word is a second person within you. Yeah. Through, through which in thinking you utter speech, and through which also in uttering speech you
1: generate thought. So think about it, what he's essentially saying is... Because those are pretty big words. Oh, especially if we're just reading it and you're not following along, because it is really hard to follow along when people just read. But, what is he saying? He's just saying, have you ever been outside on a walk and you were talking in your brain to somebody else who's in your brain? And the answer to that question, I think, is yes to everybody. Right? We're always talking to ourselves. I mean, if there isn't somebody around me, I almost am always talking to myself. And I I mean, in everything I do, I find myself, I watch a movie, I go, dang it, I missed half the movie because I'm talking to myself about something, when I'm driving down the, down the road on this little podcast and I get on a conversation with myself, so to speak. We don't think of it that way because to us it's just my mind. But you are bouncing things off of something else in your mind all the time. And so for Tertullian, what he's saying is look, the Bible says in the beginning was the Word. And he goes, and really, when we talk about the Word, he says, we're really thinking reason. It's something internal in the mind. And he goes, and that's what Jesus I'm is. The that is. The word. He is in the mind of God. He is the word of God inside God's mind. And so, he says, when God tells us that he made us in his image, that's actually communicating to us somewhat what the Trinity is like. You have God, and then you have the word inside of him, which is, he says, like a second person. Which, to a certain degree, I think, he's just saying, it's kind of a metaphor, really. I mean, He's going to say, this is how we can approximate and kind of come close to understanding what it means for God to be triune. But the key thing that he does drive home is this. That thing inside is different from you, so to speak, which is a weird way to look at it because I don't look at it that way. And I think it is a weird explanation because if you actually did stop and go, you're right, it is a different thing, you might have people think very oddly of you. Right? (laughs) Um, if you really did start to treat it as a separate thing altogether. But this um, is how he gets to the gut
3: language and yes. why, and this kind of helps us explain, well, this is mm-hmm. how to totally explain the
1: language, and I see it, uh, the sun being Which I have to admit. Yeah. I'm glad you actually said that. And this guy's, it's actually something we've been talking about all day, because um, Chad flew in from St. Louis and he's staying with me, and we actually met with Trevor last night, and we met with this morning, so we've kind of been talking about this all day. But as I was reading through this, I thought, man, Tertullian, just so you know, he actually says some things that if you were a Christian who grew up reciting the Nicene Creed, you would definitely disagree with and have serious problems. Like, even though Tertullian presents kind of a, a Trinitarian view that is, in a lot of ways, like the Trinitarian view that will be accepted by the church, he takes it in a really strange place that made me feel super uncomfortable. And that's what Trevor was referencing when he said it brings out the begotten language. Because even though he says that, that Jesus is co-eternal with God, he's in the mind of God, so he's always there, he says there comes a moment when that is begotten, when it becomes like a human like not a human. It's not we're not talking at the incarnation when Jesus is born of the Virgin Mary. He says there comes a moment in the history of the universe, the cosmic history when all of a sudden the word which was always there comes out and becomes like a second person and uh, i'll go ahead and read that if you don't mind yeah, yeah. it's actually he says then therefore does the word also himself assume his own form and glorious garb his own sound and vocal utterance then god says let there be light so i read this and i go this is bad because what he seems to be saying is that Jesus, even though he would say Jesus is God is eternal, he said Jesus really becomes God the Son the second, like in a form when he creates the universe. When he says, let there be light. That's bad. Don't listen to him on that. If you're my student, I'm not encouraging you to believe that. But so I feel super uncomfortable with it. But he says, let there be light. He says, This is so chapter seven, by the way. Oh yeah, chapter seven, if you have it. He says, this is the perfect nativity of the word. When he proceeds, when he proceeds forth from God. So he says, this is when Jesus proceeded forth from the Father. Which, after the Council of Nicaea, the church was very adamant. Jesus eternally is begotten. Eternally. Which means he's always been in the, the that form, the form of God the Son. Uh, and he says, by him first to devise and think out all things under the name of wisdom. This is really bad. The Lord created or formed me as the beginning of his ways. Which is a quote from Proverbs, but in that proverb, it's actually wisdom talking, which I myself actually don't think that needs to be speaking of God the Son. It's actually a personification, which means he's just describing wisdom as if it was a personality. So he takes that to be that Jesus said, I was formed or created as the first of his ways. And... He, again, he doesn't actually, he believes that God the Son is eternal, but he's eternal as the Word of God and he proceeds out in a moment and takes his own distinct form. I would say, and what the Council of Nicaea would say, what Trinitarian doctrine, Orthodox Trinitarian doctrine would say, is that Christ eternally is begotten from the Father. So there was never a moment when he wasn't God the Son. Okay, So the, he, there was never a moment when he didn't have that distinct form, per se. Which is um, weird, so. too, because then Tertullian actually ends up using the sun
3: and ray analogy, which for some reason, like why? Because then that I mean,
1: shouldn't that go along with orthodoxy? Why does he talk this way? Yeah, it's a really weird thing to be honest. It's kind of hard to pigeonhole where he's at. It's 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 kind of hard to really nail him down. Like, in, in fact, even when I read this with both Chad and with Trevor, they were like, I don't know if he's saying what it seems like he's saying. You know what I mean? Which. I want to be fair to him. So I personally I want Tertullian to be right. Like I want him to not have messed this up. So, so maybe I should qualify that and say he might be wrong and I'd like to think he's wrong. I would never use this language. At the same time, you know, he's writing before Nicaea. He doesn't have a group that's sitting there saying, look, this is what we can say. He doesn't have that. He's trying to navigate it all himself. So um, you know, that's a little tricky. Sorry. Yeah, I was going
0: to say, another... So just thinking of the analogies... So one, when we're talking about the Trinity again, I'm sure you're... You know, this... Like, I'm, I'm not always sure that I'm tracking. So sometimes it's helpful he uses a metaphor. So he uses the metaphor of the sun, the ray, and the light. Um, he also uses um, the metaphor of a tree. And He says there's the root... This is uh, chapter 8, almost at the end. Um, he says, um, Following, therefore, the core of these analogies, I confess that I call God and His Word, the Father and His Son, too. For the root and the tree are distinctly two things, but correlatively joined. The falcon and the river, the source and the river, are also two forms, but indivisible. Uh, so likewise, the sun and the ray are two forms, but coherent ones. So these are his analogies. So he says, in the same way that when you look at a tree, it's got roots, and it's got the tree. Uh, we call them one thing. uh,
2: They're connected. They're not disjointed. uh, But they're separate. And the root is
0: kind of God the Father. The tree is God the Son.
1: Which is such a good analogy because the scripture says that no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God has declared him. So we don't see God. What we do see is Jesus. Right? Which is actually how the author of Hebrews even says it. But we see Jesus. So... In his analogy, the, the root being the God, the God the Father, that's underground, we don't see it. The tree, which we do see, is God the Son. And the tree cannot be without the root. There is no tree if there's no root. Um, he does take this analogy, though, a little bit further, too. Because for him, and this is where another, a lot of, now this is one place where I feel like modern Orthodox, where Orthodox theologians historically would take some serious issue with him. He argues very vehemently, that God the Father is prior in a sense, which Orthodox theologians don't feel comfortable with. And by prior, he means is properly and more. in imp- I'm going to miss it. What would you say? If you know what I'm talking about? Like, how would you word it? Well, in the economy of the dispensation. Yeah, which are the two words he uses, which by the way are just as confusing for us as it is for you. <laughs> yeah. There's
3: a there's a hierarchy. Yeah, there's son, a hierarchy, just, that's really again, Yeah, yeah. The, the Father, um, since the Son has begotten of him and the Spirit proceeds from both of them, yeah. there's a hierarchy where the Father is first. Yeah. And
0: historically, that hierarchy is only in what is called the economic trinity, or God as God acts in the earth. Uh, that is how there is hierarchy. In God and God's self, um, there is plurality and no hierarchy. All three persons are equal.
1: In God and God's self. Meaning in the being, like in who he is. It's not like God the Father is greater. They they are perfectly equal, but in their action and their working in the universe. We're giving you super
0: difficult kind of stuff, but I mean, this is like, these are distinctions that theologians make. And Tertullian talks about ec- the ec- uh, economy a lot. Now, real quick, I will also state this is totally different. From like GDP, gross domestic product, and Wall Street, <laughs> yes. it has nothing to do with the modern use of the term, term economy. Um, so this yeah. just means household management or the way that God manages the world, the way that God acts in the world. Uh, that's what that's what the economy means here.
1: Um, so go to, the, go to the water analogy because I think it's better than energy. actually. Before we go to the water, I just want to use the sun analogy yeah. for one reason, and well, that well, that's is the best. Tool. You think knowledge. I feel good about the tree analogy and guess But the it's, it's, not,
3: but it's different substances.
1: You, you're, right. you're right. You're right. You're right. So, but the sun analogy. This, you're right. No, that you're right about that. The thing about the sun analogy, where he says you have the sun, and then you have the rays, and then you have the light. And so he would say that's like the triune God. You have the sun itself, which he would say is the Father. The rays of the sun are what like shoot out. That's the sun. That's what you see. And then you have the heat, the light that you feel. That's the spirit. That's the way he does the analogy, and he would say you would never in looking at it as a whole think of the light as separate. You would never think of it as different. And he goes but what do you think of as the Son proper as God proper? It's the Son itself. That's what you think of as God properly. And so he says that's why it's important for
4: us to use the word God
1: for the Father. And he goes whereas we use the term Lord for the Son and Holy Spirit for the third person of the Trinity. Which is really helpful. Yeah. You wanted to switch to the river
3: analogy? or well, I was just, I just wanted to explain it. No, I was going to move on
0: to Paraclete. let's uh, just move on to uh Okay, so we, I'm thinking maybe a couple more minutes, and this last part is really distinct to Tertullian. Um, comes up in Chapter 2, among other places, um, but this is sort of fascinating, and one other part that may sort of fit uh, within our context a little bit. Uh, so Tertullian says in Chapter 2, we, however, uh, as we indeed always have done, and more especially since we have been better instructed by the paraclete, who leads men indeed into all truth? Uh, Alright, so paraclete uh, is the Greek word for the comforter. So Jesus says in John, uh, before he goes to the cross, he says, he will send to you a comforter, the Holy Spirit. And so, Tertullian says that the Holy Spirit is the one who's teaching and instructing us, leading us into all truth. And so this is really important for Tertullian, and part of what ultimately gets him condemned as a heretic, oddly enough, um, is he has a very strong view of how the Holy Spirit teaches and guides. Um, And he calls it the Paraclete, like I said, it's from the Greek word. And that is very specific to the kind of Christian uh, that Tertullian was. He called himself in the New Prophecy, Montanus. And so if if you've looked on the internet at all about Tertullian, you'll see that he's called a Montanus. Um, and there was a guy called Montanus, uh, who he also liked as a good teacher, uh, and who taught about how the Holy Spirit can instruct us. Yeah. Um, so I just thought, you know, we could bring this up to say, this is really crucial for Tertullian, uh, is that the Holy Spirit helps him and teaches him and guides him. And oddly enough, <laughs> later on, theologians will shy away from using the Holy Spirit very much, almost at all. Uh, get, they get very nervous when people start talking about the Holy Spirit, and I have lots of thoughts on that, but I, uh, you know, they just—I think it makes them feel very uncomfortable because you can't really pen it down, and it's not super logical. Uh, and so Tertullian's okay with it, uh, but but later theologians get very uncomfortable uh, talking about the
3: Holy Spirit. So you kind of up there. Well, uh, <laughs> yeah. So that would be kind of my question for those of you like like Tertullian.
0: You know uh, how how similar is he to modern charismatic
1: or Pentecostal movements? Uh, this is kind of an open question. He's a like, Pentecostal. Yeah, no, he really, no, he genuinely is. He really is. I mean, if you have come from a Pentecostal background of I any mean, kind, like when you read the stuff that he did, that he believed, that he practiced, it's very Pentecostal esque. Um, he followed this guy Montanus and these two women who he thought of as prophetesses, and he was condemned as a heretic. But that's a pretty complex thing, and it actually sheds some light on. Kind of the way the church functioned back then, because you understand before the Roman Emperor Constantine converts to Christianity, um, Christianity goes through this kind of up and down stage where sometimes it's just left alone and allowed to flourish a bit, and sometimes it's being heavily persecuted by emperors. People are being sought out, arrested, arrested and killed. Um, And so it's really hard to speak of the church as like a unified thing because they don't have the opportunity. To be like a unified bureaucratic, you know, system. They don't really have that much of an opportunity. But, and uh, this is kind of, and if you've listened to our podcast, you know, i we've conceded this point a lot. The early Christians, up, I mean, quite early in the church, really, really, really respected the bishop of Rome, uh, who they now call, you know, the pope. So the bishop of Rome did hold this kind of special privileged position. Now he wasn't respected. In the way Catholics respect him today, he wasn't, he wasn't given, he wasn't looked at as like a monarch over the church or a king over the church. Different people disagreed with him and fight with him. But he had this kind of position as where people kind of looked at him as like our kind of leader a little bit. And that's what happened here is Tertullian early in his life got along pretty well with the Bishop of Rome. And at some point the Bishop of Rome says, you're a heretic, you're out kind of thing. And it was largely centered on the fact that Tertullian followed this prophet, this prophet Montanus, and these two prophetesses, and they believed that the Holy Spirit spoke to them, they believed that they received prophecies, they believed that those prophecies were... Now, I'm I'm from a Calvary Chapel background, which is a charismatic movement, I believe those things as well, but it is actually something that you find fairly rare in the history of the church. You find it, I think, early on in some of the things we read... I think the Shepherd of Hermes had some things that really sounded like uh, what you might think of as charismatic gifts and so forth. But you find it pretty rare eventually, where people just don't talk like that. It's You don't have special revelation. You don't have the Holy Spirit speaking of you. It seems to kind of die out by around this time. And Tertullian seems to kind of be one of the last big guys who really supports it. And it gets him in trouble um, with at least a lot of members of the church. Although, I did read that even though the Bishop of Rome... Excommunicated them. It's not clear that his own bishop did. That, because again, it's kind of things are disjointed, and his own bishop in in uh, North Africa Carthage, it may not have. So he may have still been in good standing, but it's always been a confusion with Christians because we've always been like, hey, we like Tertullian, he's really important in the development of the Trinity or the doctrine of the Trinity, but he had these things we don't feel comfortable with, is the way that a lot of these guys go.
0: Alright, um, I mean, we've been going for probably too long, but about 25 minutes. Do we want to open it up to some questions? Or? I would like to,
1: but there is at least one, just one more thing. I want to actually... <laughs> we want to talk about how he has the argument that God can't suffer? Yeah, I want to, that's exactly right. Okay. I want to talk about the, so, so, Tertullian, one of the big things that drove his, this need that he had, this feeling, or this, uh, concern to reject Praxeus' teachings uh, to reject modalism, the modalism we've talked about, is he absolutely would not accept that it was absolutely impossible that God the Father, God proper, should suffer. He says that is impossible. And so, because it's impossible, it cannot be that God the Son who died was God the Father. Now, to a certain degree, I'm sympathetic to that argument. To a certain degree, there must be a, that situation where Jesus is hanging on the cross and cries out, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" There must be a moment where Jesus dies and there is a real separation within the Godhead. That has to happen. And it wouldn't make sense if God being one person, one, you know, one person were to die in that sense. There would be no you couldn't you couldn't separate the person in that sense. It wouldn't make any sense. So I'm sympathetic to that argument. But he just assumes God can't be moved by pain. And I myself take issue with that. I feel that God can, of course, feel pain. Um, And it's actually something that philosophers, so this is, we talk about how much we love philosophy, but philosophers have long had their own views of God. And in general, starting all the way back with Plato, and probably before Plato, there was this assumption that God couldn't feel things. And that's because they thought feelings were bad and reason was good. And so if God created the world... Was perfect. He couldn't be motivated by feelings at no, all. I just I don't know. <laughs> no, no, you're right. I mean, when I first I you did know, to be right. more about a
3: physical suffering. Uh, but you're right. It's no. It, it kind of stems from Platonic ideals and the idea that basically you have you know, the highest form of good. And you know, and, uh, you you know, know Plato's is view is being associated it's with it's the it's father, true. who yeah, is so far. And it's, it's actually kind of like, I don't know, it's weirdly Gnostic, too. like you know It's Gnostic. Of, Gnostic. Know, you mean thinking that he's
1: not, thinking that he can't suffer, it's Gnostic?
3: Yeah, I mean, slightly, because it is, it's trying to, like, remove yourself from the physical. I realize now we're using more words.
0: Well, we talked yeah. about Gnostic a lot. In That's that true. Yeah. The yeah. the, so just to
3: right
0: uh, turn the text a bit, in chapter 29, uh, sort of, right, more towards the beginning, he says... Uh, since we on our side affirm our doctrine in precisely these terms, which you use on your side respecting the Son, we are not guilty of blasphemy against the Lord. For we do not maintain that He died after the divine nature, but only after the human. And then a little further down, uh, He says, Now, the fa- if the Father is incapable of suffering, He is incapable of suffering in company with another. Otherwise, if He can suffer, He is, of course, capable of suffering. And it's a,
1: Which a, is obvious, if he can suffer, yeah. he is definitely capable of suffering.
0: It's a, it's, a back, it's a backwards way of saying, well, we all know that God cannot suffer. So, it can't be God on the cross who suffers. And it's taken for granted, and this is the influence of Platonic philosophy that even pervades somewhat of the West, where God is not incapable of suffering. So sometimes it's called impassable. Um, that's the big Greek word. God cannot passio, cannot have suffering. cannot have things be acted upon. And so the Greeks uh, basically believed that emotion uh, was a negative thing because it acted upon your rational soul. Uh, And they wanted to distance themselves from being acted upon, this sort of almost outside force. Um, And since God was in control, he couldn't be acted on. And again, I actually, I understand where Tertullian's coming from. I find the argument fascinating. Although to me, the, the like the re- one of the main reasons that I still, I mean, that I confess to be a Christian is because of the power of the idea that God Himself suffered for me. Uh, so I, I do take issue with him on this, but in terms of explaining Tertullian in his it context, it's helpful to know this,
3: this. Actually, goes back to his hierarchy too, because if he didn't hold that hierarchy, it would be strange to basically plead a special case for the Father or for the Son. Sorry, when the Father is supposed. Why not this I
2: mean,
3: yeah. yeah. But, oh, but this member, he gets to go down and die. Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know. It's yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah, okay. the father had to have suffered in the crucifixion, but it was a different kind of suffering. Right. It yeah. wasn't the painful suffering that Jesus experienced. Instead, I mean, well, it was painful, but it wasn't the physical pain that Christ experienced. It was a different kind of pain. It was the pain of separation from God the Son, right? In first time in all of eternity, the, 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 this break, this rift in the Godhead, the feeling of sin truly breaking down uh, this this eternal Trinity. Now, I, I would add also, by the way, that philosophers don't just take it typically to mean that God cannot suffer. They actually long like the, the philosophers have always thought of God as not being able to feel anything. That is, any feeling is considered below him. Uh, he doesn't experience anger. He doesn't experience joy. He doesn't experience laughter. None of those kinds of things can be things that God feels. And I take extreme issue with all of those things. And actually, something I'd encourage you guys all to read, I would encourage you all to read Pascal, Lays Pascal's Ponce, which is a book of his thoughts. (laughs) My old student Jackson has read those. You like those, didn't you? (laughs) It'll melt your brain. The Ponce, there's a moment in there which... So Pascal is one of the great philosophers, historically, and he was a great mathematician. He had a huge impact on Western society. He a calculator, and the things that the guy did. Um, but he has this moment where he's kind of like a spiritual awakening, where he feels that God appeared to him and kind of spoke to him. And in the midst of that, he took out a sheet of paper and he jotted down a couple of thoughts. And he titled it Memorial. He folded it up and stuck it in his pocket, wearing it over his, his chest. And he wore it over his chest for the rest of his life, and I'm not going to be able to quote the whole thing verbatim, but uh, I've got part of it. He says, the, uh, he basically says, I don't want the God of the philosophers. I do not want the God of the philosophers. I reject that God. Give me the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say, in that is life. Right. So he rejects this, this totally rational, it's not that it's irrational, but this God that is devised basically by human reason. And he says, that's not the God that has been revealed uh, to us. And so that's one of the things, actually, that I really love about the doctrine of the Trinity, is the doctrine of the Trinity is distinctly not rational. I I don't think it needs to be irrational, but it's not something that you can properly analyze. Like, Chad said a few times, this is confusing. It is confusing. Of course it is. We're talking about the eternal God, right? Just try to think (laughs) about infinity for a second. I mean, think about when you were a kid. And your mom, I, mean, I remember as a kid, I, I just, i sit there, I learned my alphabet, I learned my ABCs, and then I learned my numbers. Or maybe I learned my numbers first. I learned to count to 10. And I always, I remember thinking for a long time, 10 is it, 10 is the end. And then my mom said, well, actually, no, you can go up to 20. And I said, teach me this wisdom. And so I learned how to count to 20, and then I thought it was over. And she said, no, you can go to 100. I cannot believe it. And I remember I learned how to count to one hundred when I was five. And I went home and I said, "Is that it, mom? Is that it?" And she goes, "Well, no. There's a thousand and a million. And I was like, "This is when does it end?" And she said, "It never ends." And I was like, "That does not make any sense. Right? It is completely nonsense to think that something never ends." But when you think about it. You understand that every term that we use to describe God is nonsense. It's something that we really can't comprehend. We really can't wrap our minds around it. The eternal God, he's outside of time and space. I mean, none of that makes, I mean, we can't comprehend anything that is apart from time and space and number and those kinds of things. So, of course God is one who is three. Part of me should go, it has to be that. Everything else makes sense. Modalism makes tons of sense. Trinitarianism makes no sense. Therefore, it's true. <laughs> uh, though I do want to add. There, there are rational so ways
5: good. to yeah, actually, this is a in, fight,
2: this is the fight Trevor and I have.
1: Interpret the, <laughs> the Trinity, if you will, and if you want. I don't want to say it's irrational. i okay, yeah. so I'm saying it's non rational, meaning it's not the kind of thing well, that you no, infer. No, what but, Yeah, no, we didn't come up we weren't like, well, the most reasonable thing is the Trinity. Yes. Only because
3: it's revealed. Yes. But I I agree there with are you. rational defenses of the Trinity, and I think there are logically consistent ways to state the
1: Trinity. No, I agree with you. I, I, I'm right. not contending that. I'm not yeah. saying that there aren't. Anyway, but, I just yeah. want to clarify yeah. that, though. That's why I wanted to be clear. Not irrational, non-rational. Right, all right. Yeah, is what I mean. All right, I think we should
0: do some questions. questions. Yeah. Uh, I don't think we have
1: we a mic. We do have a mic, because what I'm going to do is, if you have a question for us, I'm going to swing it out that way. Oh, wait. No, we have a mic. that can us a mic for us, actually. So we can just pass it around in the audience. Yeah. Um, well, you can come back here. Oh, actually, you can come back to Chris. That's the way to do it. Does anybody have any questions? This requirement. I, I, I knew it. Ben is down there taking notes, and I thought, okay, he's got some stuff. I should also add, Ben is a Platonist, and so when I brought up Plato, I knew the whole time I'm thinking I'm going to be in trouble. Ben is going to really kill after me. I'm ben like. has also been on the podcast. Yeah. Ben is one of our colleagues and a guy who we've had on the podcast, and we will have him again. By the way, one of the smartest guys I know. Tom, I must not know very many people. <laughs> well, you guys heard JackDog and Trevor. These guys are genius. Well,
5: thank you guys very much. That was awesome. I'm always impressed at how much theology you guys pack into that. I, I mean, I was hanging out with Justin Ranger earlier, and everything we brought up when we were discussing this, you guys nailed it, so thank you. Um, I am going to try to offer somewhat of a defense of uh, some Platonism, because I heard it criticized. Um, but, but my motive isn't just to defend Platonism, it's to defend um, a major movement in Christianity that happened early on that I think is neglected. And often we use this term orthodoxy and, and are, are kind of trying to establish this thing orthodoxy. And that's a very hard thing to establish. Um, and so we kind of appeal to maybe the big council of Nicaea, which they appeal to several times. And I, I think I'd like to um, phrase this question by, by saying, is that fair to set up something as Nicaea, as a sort of orthodoxy, up against what we might call, they reference something called Arianism, and uh, Arianism was the great heresy that Nicaea was called to combat. Right. So Chad set this up well by saying Tertullians even into this middle ground. On the one hand we have modalism, which is saying that God is one to the point of taking away Jesus' and the spirit's uh, personhood, so kind of obliterating the, the trinity. But the other extreme is saying Arianism, which there are almost three, not just three persons, but almost three essences, yeah. or three, three beings. And so Tertullian's trying to hit this middle ground. Well, I think Tertullian does a good job of um, negating and overcoming the modalism, but I think he does go to the extreme. You guys kept pointing this out. Tom said, there's these things we're uncomfortable with. Tertullian seems to actually be advocating the other extreme, Arianism. But I want to take a step back and say Arianism is not quite what we think it is, and it's easy things to, to dismiss. And I don't know if it's quite fair to say what Nicaea says therefore has to be the standard orthodoxy and therefore um, Arianism was completely wrong, and let's discount anything that's related to that. In fact, I'm going to get rid of the term Arianism altogether and say the Platonic tradition that keeps coming up over and over again is a very powerful tradition in Christianity. And you guys have done a great job in the podcast of going through the early Christian Platonists: Justin Martyr, Origen, Clement, and you guys together a week and showing that this tradition of Plato and the Logos, the Logos, that is so central to what Tertullians are doing, that's the second person of the Trinity, does seem to have this unique personhood. Uh, Arianism says that he's a completely different being, but that's too far, perhaps. Um, but the, the Platonist tradition seems to be affirmed by Tertullian, and therefore I don't think it's fair to say Nicaea overcomes that and, and does away with that. So I guess I'd like you guys, if, if, you, if you could, to address a little bit about the Arianism and say, how do you see that being overcome? is Tertullian, but, um Arian. And just to conclude, I have one more thought. I know it's a lot of thoughts um, on, on this. But philo Judaeus, Philo was a, a Jew that was before Christ. That was also Platonist. And he's the one that actually said, the Logos is a second um, God. Because when God thought the Logos, the reason, that became like a second God. In fact, says Philo, who was a Jew before Christianity, The second God is almost like the son of God. And so this Platonist tradition seems actually to be quite orthodox. So my big point is, how should we say that it's unorthodox and even heretical when Tertullian affirms it, Origen, Clement, Justin, and Philo-Judaeus all seem to be confirming this tradition. Thank you. Um, Okay, so I'll I'll start here at
0: least. So we've, we've talked about this a little bit. So orthodoxy just means right thinking, straight thinking. Thinking. Um, some of you may be familiar. There are Orthodox churches still, Russian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox. Those are churches that exist today um, that, that still, they use that term Orthodox in their title. Um, but all it means is correct or straight thinking. Um, the difficulty, as Ben pointed out, um, is what counts in, this, in Orthodoxy and what counts as heresy. So heresy comes from another Greek word, hierasis. Um, which is a sect, um, and which is a reaching after, a choosing after one's own. And so, the way that orthodoxy was understood is: Would you submit um, to a truth greater than what that sort of you would choose? Um, and that's, I mean, that's one way that orthodoxy is understood. We chose Nicaea as a, um, as I think, kind of like a barometer. Um, it's like just so everybody knows this is generally what Christians think. So we're just gonna use Nicaea as a, as a, a point. Uh, so you can see, okay, a lot of people think Nicaea is the right way to think about things. Um, and so we just, we picked that as a point because it's generally agreed upon. So that's why we chose Nicaea, even though it doesn't happen for another 120 years. So it's true that Tertullian can't use the language, uh, like for instance, homoousios, uh, of the same substance. Tertullian never says it um, in, that, in that way. Um, and I actually, but he uses the equivalent, the Latin equivalent, conscious not theology. Well, he says, yeah, he does. He says one yeah, sentence. He, he does. But you know, but my my point being, there are well, he actually says that Jesus proceeded um, which is not the language of Nicaea. Jesus is begotten, the Holy Spirit proceeds. So Tertullian is wrong by Nicaea uh, in terms of the words that he uses. Um, so, anyway, but we were using that as a point to fix on. So, you, okay, so, like, this is one a lot of people know. That was the whole
1: I would take it a little further. I would, add, first, I'd add one more definition of orthodoxy. So, one is, of course, what Chad just said. Well, the two things Chad said. One, of course, being the proper name of Eastern Orthodox churches. Um, two is, of course, the, the meaning of the word right teaching, and then this idea that, that uh, it's connected with a... With, with nicaea in particular but i'm going to take it a little bit further but let me add a third kind of orthodoxy meaning for the term orthodoxy as is really really tied up with the word right thinking okay and that is this everybody from their own vantage point is orthodox right so if you disagree with me you are a heretic period that's the way i feel i may not think negatively it. Because I just know that there are a lot of people in the world who are going to disagree with me, so I just know that. But I believe that all my beliefs are orthodox. If I didn't believe that, I wouldn't believe them. You know what I mean? Like, if I thought some of my beliefs were wrong, I'd change them. So I do think my thoughts are orthodox. That's just the way it is. What I, I would take it further than just picking Nicaea as a starting point. It seems to me that there is a narrative in the history of the church which says there is a group who is in charge— and they're the ones who kind of dictate where what is Orthodox and what is not. And for the most part, that holds pretty steady until about the year 1000, 1000-something. 1000 and then there's a split. And now you have two groups, two distinct groups, who historically, when people look at the narrative of church history, they say, well, both of those are kind of Orthodox. And they both carry on this narrative. And those two groups are the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church. And then you get to the 1600s, and the Roman Catholic Church goes, into about a thousand different groups, all of which claiming to be Orthodox. But people do kind of step back and say, well, we can find these ways in which they all kind of agree, so we're going to call all of that Orthodox. It's a statement about the history of the Church. And in the history of the Church, you have these groups that are condemned. That doesn't mean they're wrong, necessarily. It just means they're condemned by that by those mainline groups. So by saying that something isn't Orthodox because it doesn't match Nicaea, what we're trying to do, I think, is making a statement about what, the, what history says. The narrative, history is created right or wrong. It's the narrative. And I think that that's, can be, I think that can be fairly objective. People, Arianism was counted as a heresy, period. Whether or not they're wrong is a different question. I disagree with them, so I think they're wrong, so I think they're heresy, but that doesn't mean that, and I could be wrong, which would be, you know, it's always a scary thing facing the possibility of your incorrectness. But... <laughs> That having been said, I do want to make it a couple of things really clear. Arius, I, I don't think Arius, I, I don't think that uh, Tertullian is an Arian. He said a couple of things that sound very Arian, but he says a number of things which Arius would repudiate completely. He says that God is one substance. He repeats it over and over again, and that was actually the thing Arius would not sign at Nicaea. He refused to acknowledge that God was one substance. Uh, that for Tertullian is a huge thing. He's one substance, three person, three persons. And at the end of chapter five, just real quick,
3: he does say, "I may therefore, without rashness, first lay down this as a first principle that even before the creation of the universe, God was not alone." Yeah. So he didn't—he didn't think as Arius would have. Yeah. God literally was alone, and then he made the Son. Yes.
1: So, so I guess that
3: was why it was probably interesting.
1: Yeah. But, and even though, and you see, guys, no, Arius believes that Jesus is a created being, period. He's a powerful being. He was the first created being. He was the being that created the universe, but he is a created being. There, in fact, he would say there is a time when he was not. And Origen, or sorry, Tertullian does not believe that. He believes that there was a time when God, when God the Son in a form came into existence, but that God the Son was eternally the Word of God inside the mind of God, eternally. So, as God reason. the Son is eternal. What's that?
3: I said, and then as reason.
1: Yeah, and so I don't think he's an Arian, but there are things that Arius has in in union with him. I also don't think Clement is, although he similarly has a few things. Origin we haven't got to yet, so I want to be careful. And we're going to talk about Origin, and we're going to talk about Arius when we get to him. So that stuff will come up. Anything else? Um, Yes, but I can answer Ben's a little later, too. Uh, We want to get, uh, I want to make sure if there's other questions. Yeah, let's get to some other questions. Any other questions? James.
0: Um... I was noticing how when you were, Tertullian was writing those things, he was mostly talking about the Father and the Son and not as much focused on the Holy Ghost. Do you know why that is? Um, That could be my fault, partly, because that was just, we focused on it at the end. But first of all, let me say, good question. It's a really good question. Thank you, Jake. Um, And so, yeah, I I would say partly it was our, our own emphasis because actually, that's one thing that we like about Tertullian is, is he talks about the Holy Spirit a lot. He thinks the Holy Spirit's really important. Yeah. Um, so you're right to pick up on that. Actually, it's funny
1: you say that, James, because right before we left my house to come here, Chad said that very thing to me about the church theologians we read, that they don't talk about the Holy Spirit very much. But Tertullian did have a section that we didn't talk about a lot, and that really is kind of our fun. I've heard like a modern theologians. say or something. Yeah, 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 the forgotten fish, Which yeah. is true. There's yeah. a lot of
3: discussions.
1: Which, getting back to the charismatic Pentecostal kind of thing, that's how we feel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and weirdly, since he is a comforter, we shouldn't
3: think more closely associating ourselves with them. Anyway. Yeah. Good question, Good James.
1: Anything else? Justin, can ask one. Justin. Yeah. Also, very smart guy. I need to be careful because people are going to go up there and not going to say that, but it's only going to mean that I don't
4: know them. I think James is a pretty smart guy. You know? <laughs> James is a very smart guy. He <laughs> just is you too nice to um, Okay, yeah, so my question was about two points that you guys already brought up in your discussion. And so it, it, part of Tertullian's argument was that Jesus is the Word, which is the Logos, so kind of this emanation of speech within the mind of God. And then the weird thing that you brought up in chapter uh, 7, about the begotten language and about how he basically says that Jesus was begotten when God the Father says in the beginning. So in that movement of speech is more or less the the incarnation of Christ, right? Um, And I I would agree I think both of those things are problematic, as you pointed out earlier. But they seem to be pretty central to to Tertullian's argument. So I was kind of curious on what your thoughts were on how to still have a proper understanding of the trinity without being committed to either of those two perspectives.
0: The two perspectives being... Care, the
4: and Arianism? No, no, that... The, the, uh, okay, let me rephrase it. No. So, how, how to understand Jesus being the Logos, so the, the emanation of the speech from my, the mind yeah. of God, uh, being the f- first point, and then the second point, the incarnation in the act of speech of creation...
1: Well, I do have a thought, actually. It seems to me that the central reason, the reason why Tertullian emphasizes those things is because he wants to emphasize that hierarchy that, that Trevor pointed out. And I, I don't know, I don't know that I believe that there's a hierarchy in the sense he thinks of. And I, I certainly think that Niceneans, and I'm a Nicene, meaning I, I hold to the Nicene Creed, I certainly think, that They've never felt comfortable speaking of a hierarchy, right? I, I think, and this would go into different theological things, but when we talk about the nature of Jesus as the union of God and man in one person, I think that there is a submission in Jesus because he was a man, not because he's God the Son. And so I don't believe there's a hierarchy in that sense. I don't even know for sure, because I have. but this is just because I haven't thought about it. And a lot of it is because I don't know how well I understand Tertullian's use of the word uh, economy. I don't know that I believe that there is a hierarchy in economy. I need to study that idea more. I'm just not certain. That's not that I disagree with him necessarily. It's just that I'm not familiar enough, I would say, to speak to that. I don't know. What do you guys think? Uh,
3: Yeah, I was kind of picking up on part of your question about, I guess, it's how to also think of the begottenness in the Trinity without thinking of it Literally got made sound waves in the air, and then the word was begotten, because that's kind of how Tertullian reads to me. And uh, which which I kinda I'm not so sure about, but he literally vocally said some words, and that was exactly when uh, the second person of the was begotten. Um, I I don't know how to understand it in the sense of the economy either, other than the fact that the second person was begotten and I guess there's several different ways to formulate the way in which you can say Christ is begotten. I mean, I would think of it in the sense of the incarnation. I mean, I think plain, simply not when uh, the Father spoke, let there be light. I would, I would think the begotten language came about because, uh, you know, as we believe in the Holy, uh, well, the virgin birth, uh, which was due to the Holy Spirit, and thus when the incarnation happened, that was the God, God humbled himself so, yeah, That's how I would think of that, Although yeah. that
1: would go against Nicaea, which says that he's eternally begotten. Oh, fair, fair, enough. It, right? fair enough. So, I see your point. Uh, oh, right. okay. Can I use, I'll use C.S. Lewis's analogy, guys, for right. that. C.S. Lewis actually uses an analogy to explain that. He says, he says think in terms of He actually changes a little. He says, think in terms of causation, which should make you freak out, because you would say, God does, the Father does not cause Jesus. Jesus is eternal. But he says, just think of it in terms of causation as a metaphor. And he says, imagine you have a book, say, like Tertullian book. He says, now imagine you have a second book being held up on that book, and it's held up on this table. He would say, what is the cause of the second book being held up? The first book, Right? Then he says, now imagine, that there is no table, but this first book is just there, suspended in air. He says, and now imagine that both books are there forever. What is the cause of the second book being held up? The first book, still. And he would say, that is kind of like God the Father's begotten, or the Son being begotten from the Father, eternally. God the Father is always there, God the Son is always there, but there is a relationship of Father to Son that is perpetual. And whatever begottenness means when you talk about the Godhead, we have no idea what that would mean, but it does have this sense, it's connected with the relationship of the Son as the Son vis-a-vis God. And so the Father, in that sense, begets eternally, even though it is not, there, even though that does not imply a priority. Now, you might say that doesn't make any sense in like a big scheme of things, or in the big uh, scheme of things, and I would say I agree, I agree. That's it's 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 an, it's an analogy that goes only so far, but I, I think it's a nice one to help us kind of understand what at least eternal causality would look like, and if that's what eternal causality looks like, that could be what eternal begottenness looks like. Yeah, I actually just to defend myself since I misunderstood something.
2: Yeah, I would
3: I would actually use the sun analogy, um, I guess more, yeah. more or less, because yeah, the the idea of the the sun, uh, you know, necessarily is rays of light in that sense, in which case the rays of light don't exist without the sun, the sun out, the rays of light. The sun, yeah. light. So, sun there, S-U-N,
0: the star. Anyway. I mean, and one thing, after Nicaea, they just say, to in Latin, Ganao in Greek, they just say, begotten, don't explain it. Okay.
2: Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and,
0: and so, Tertullian, I, I, what I take Tertullian to be doing, before he even knows that those are going to be the words that we have to use, he's trying to give an explanation as he can, and he says well, oh, let's think of it like what happens in your own brain. Uh, maybe this is kind of how the beginning happen, happens. And so it's it's an explanation before we basically reserve it to this category of sort of mystery.
3: Actually, yeah, in fact, one more addendum to what I was saying earlier. I, I would actually, yeah, think of it as in not the, I think I actually brought up something and then missed my own point. I was trying to say it wasn't an actual vocal pronunciation, which is what Tertullian would probably say, but actually, the thinking itself is the begottenness in that sense. So um, he's, God's never not thought, or basically, yeah, God has always been a thinking thing, necessarily so. And so, in that sense, uh, the Son has always existed with the Father. All right, we got another question. All right. There you go. Okay, um, I hope I can explain what I'm thinking here. He's, he's talking about, um, let's
6: see, it's chapter. 27, he says, um, let see, he's talking about the holy thing that shall be called the Son of God. So you've been right through the chapter. Can you hear me? Yep. Okay. Yeah. And then he says, um, but only that divine being who was born in the flesh, of whom the psalm also says, since man became, became man in the midst of it and established it by the will of the Father, then he says, now what divine person was born in it? And then he says, the word, and the spirit, which became incarnate with the word by the will of the Father. I was just curious if you had any comments on that statement. Um, the mean,
1: fact that, that the spirit becomes incarnate with the uh, word? Is that right?
6: right? yeah. I was just curious about that idea because, um, I mean, we know that the spirit was sent on Christ mm-hmm. when he was baptized. And so this kind of seems to almost talk about the fact that they're together present in the flesh Mm -hmm. yeah
1: john the baptist actually says concerning jesus that god does not give him the spirit by measure meaning that jesus gets the full holy spirit and i actually i mean i you know i have some thoughts on this and this taps into a debate that's going to come way later that we haven't really brought up but i referenced it a second ago this, the idea of God and humanity, God and man, being joined together in the person of Jesus, the thing we need to understand is that Jesus was a man. And in being a man, he had to be a man completely. And so the scriptures tell us that he lived life exactly the way you and I live life, with one exception, only one thing marks him different, and that is that he was sinless. That's the one difference. And so what I actually think, when John the Baptist says, God gives him the spirit without measure or when we read about the spirit of God descending upon Jesus, I think that Jesus lived this human life the way that we as Christians live this human life. That people always say, well, of course he could perform miracles. He was God. He was God. He is God. And he always had that capacity as God, but he limited himself to become man. Which means that whatever he chose to do in this life, he chose to do with the tools he was going to make available to us. So when he healed, he did it by the Holy Spirit. When he performed any miracle, it was by the Holy Spirit. When he overcame sin, it was by the Holy Spirit. That's This is my view, I've never talked to Chad and Trevor about this, but my thought is, is that Jesus wanted to set for us the example that was exactly the kind of example that we were to live and follow. And so when it says the Spirit became incarnate with him, it doesn't mean that the Spirit became incarnate as another human, it means that Jesus became incarnate as a human and then the Spirit came upon him in the same way that it comes upon us. Yeah, so there, I mean, when, we're, we're not really... So this,
0: part of this is a Christological question. It's a great question. It's about the nature of Christ. Um, and though, like, Tertullian is... Uh, well, basically, the church doesn't sort of settle uh, this question until Chalcedon and 451. Uh, but what is the relationship between Christ... Uh, uh, so the Logos' relationship to the flesh of Jesus... Um, and this is, I mean, that's what, that's, I think, part of what he's trying to explain. And it's a very difficult thing, because part of it is, uh, is a question of what is, what is a human, right? And so, a human is flesh, um, and, like, I mean, I, I, you know, maybe some of you are scientific rationalists out there, where you might say, no, all we are is our meat. All we are is the flesh that you see here. The way that uh, it appears that many of the ancient Christians believe, primarily well, and ancient philosophers through Plato believe, that we were mind that we were spirit, uh, and that we were flesh. I went head, heart and I get that part of that, I guess my Christian upbringing as well, but um, and, um, but yeah, so those were the three parts of the human, and so there'll be this discussion about which part was divine how do the human and the divine go together in this person that's on earth and I, I think he's trying to explain in a way how this all comes together in one being. So later on, in that passage, he'll use this phrase, the tertium quid. Is this the third what? Is this the third, the, the third bizarre thing? Um, and so he doesn't have the the. So later on, the the Nicene all the, well, the excuse me the Chalcedonian definition uh, is that Jesus is uh, flesh and spirit, distinct, unified. Um, but And inseparable. So there are two things distinct. And so I kind of think he's saying the Holy Spirit is sort of the spirit of the fleshly Christ. And he's kind of making a, trying to explain that. So he'll, he'll actually say later on, they will also talk about that Jesus is son of God and son of man. As son of God, he is sort of spirit God. And as son of man, he's fleshly God. This is not an Orthodox definition any, uh, any longer. But that's one way that Tertullian tries to explain this bizarre situation where we have this divine Logos taking on a fleshly component. And how do we explain that? Um, like I said, it'll get, so Tom actually told a narrative of Christian history where he started with a break at a 1,000. Actually, the first major break will be in 500, uh, well, 451, of about 500 in Chalcedon, where there'll be a bunch of people who walk away and they say, no.
1: I ignore this one. He thinks it's important I always ignore <laughs> well, because
0: I'm, I'm sympathetic to the Cyrillian. I'm sympathetic
1: with them too. I totally am, too. So they start <laughs> saying it's all mixed together. Yeah. A just a few phrase. of them. We can't,
0: se- we can't separate where God is, where Jesus is God and where Jesus is man. Don't try to separate them out. Don't try to pick out one or the other. And I think Tertullian's wrestling with
1: that. Guys, we only have time, really. Oh, sorry. Just have, we just have time for one more question if you guys got one. So then we gotta me. shut down.
2: Maybe quick, quick.
1: Yeah, I mean, be quick, but we're be quick. We got to do this All right. Time. Well, thank you guys. This has been awesome. Okay. Uh, you actually just
7: answered my main question. Basically, I wanted to know what, what the thought was on Jesus' deity and his humanity. Mm-hmm. Uh, but since you already touched on that, I wanted to ask about specifically, um, verse in John 16, I guess, a segment where Jesus is talking about it's better that I go so mm-hmm. that the Father sends the helper, and almost that there's this inverse relationship there. And that's the only uh, section I can think of that has that, so it's kind of a bit of a standout. but I'm just where the thought
1: is on that. Yeah, I don't know, I, we, I cut off Trevor before you got a chance to answer with the last one. Any thoughts on that? Oh, to the last? No, that's okay. Okay, just, yeah. jump, to, ju- just jump to this question. No, that's
2: um, what I mean.
3: Yeah, we yeah uh, shoot. Now I, oh yeah, okay, so your question about John 16. Um. Yeah, this, well, this actually kind of does pertain to the last question as well, because in Christ's um, statement there, his leaving and then him, as he says, sending the like which that language is always talked about, as the Holy spirit being sent from uh, Christ, that actually oftentimes they would refer to the Holy Spirit even as uh, the Spirit of Christ sometimes, who's so closely associated with Christ, but because... Christ said to have sent the Holy Spirit. That um, I think I'm trying to now
1: actually remember what what, specific, no, I remember. what I, specifically I, was his. Yeah, I got some thoughts. Before. Okay, yeah. say. So, yeah. Yeah. So the the thing is, what I would say to that, I mean, there are probably a lot of different ways we could take that. I guess my thought has always been kind of a practical side to it, in that Jesus came, his ministry was to a very like specific locale, very small group of people. And I don't mean, of course, his death and resurrection, which is obviously of a universal importance. What I mean by it is that the actual process of preaching the kingdom of heaven, of, pre- of preaching, teaching, healing, prophesying, all of that happened in a very to a very small locale with a very small group of people, and it was very focused. He had this one. This one intent. I'm going to do this for this small period of time for this small group of people. But I think he had a cosmological... Well, cosmological is probably the wrong word. I, of course, he preaches that this kingdom is going to spread to the world. And for that to happen, then the power of the Spirit which was in him needs to now go to his followers and have this multiplying thing where it spreads and grows throughout the world. And then what's going to happen is his followers are going to take the same kingdom that he was preaching And they're going to go from Jerusalem and from Judea, where he was, and Galilee. And they're going to go into Samaria first
4: and then to the uttermost ends of the world.
1: And the kingdom of God is going to grow and to spread. And the power that was present with him is going to be present throughout the world as as the kingdom of God grows. That's how I've always taken it. So when he says, it's needful that I go so that the Comforter can come to you, that's that's how I... uh, The other thing I was wondering is, as a part of your question, did you mean, were you asking... Why did he need to go? Like, why was that necessary? That's what I was. Sorry, I was more just wondering what like early thought on that was as it relates to like we are talking all about the Trinity and all. All honesty, they don't. I don't didn't come across anything about. Um, yeah. yeah, I don't. I don't know. Like I said, the the notion of the Spirit is really neglected in early in early church writing. Yeah.
0: Okay, let's get one last question. Yeah, we got three minutes still, so we're good.
1: <laughs> all right. Thank you guys.
7: Uh, so I guess one last question is touched upon the topic of uh, uh, kind of Platonism and viewing God as a surreal, um, just rational being, uh, versus a Christian, you know, some uh, understanding of God uh, feeling and uh, being, and I was wondering if you guys can touch upon that, because, uh, for example, in mathematics we can go into abstract numbers, transcendental numbers, we can even define, understand properties of uh, infinities, in different mm-hmm but emotion seems to be a uh, purely sensual, like a very animal part of us. So I was wondering if you guys just had any thoughts on what God is feeling, and our feelings are mainly derived from our bodies and you know, uh, such like that. How might it look that God, if he isn't purely rational, uh, but more super rational, what feeling and what that might uh, look like?
0: Yeah, that's a fabulous question. I think it also touches on some concerns that Ben had as well. I can see him nodding in agreement. Uh, and, and actually, yeah, I mean, that is the, the difficult thing. To to what extent, I mean, to what extent uh, Platonic philosophy has influenced Christianity uh, is, is an open question. There, there's a guy uh, called Adolf von Harnack, who's a 19th century German, uh, who basically says that Christianity, he says that it was uh, infected uh, with Platonism. Um, and, and so he hated that. <laughs> um, but when he read through these texts, he just says, "Look, there's just too much Plato, and it doesn't have anything to do with Jesus." Was what he kind of says. Um, and but anyway, so I, my my answer would be that I think part of well, so there's a guy called Karl Barth.
2: Oh gosh, he's
0: a man. Karl Barth, actually. Says the way that we know God is only through the person of Jesus Christ, through His incarnation. So God at taking on flesh, so having that animal uh, emotional component in in Jesus Christ, we actually see God in that. So in some way, um, so that there's 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 a lot of theological discussion about whether or not there's a pre-incarnate uh, like or a, a, yeah reincarnate uh logos that has that's also the flesh. And so like whether or not the flesh is also eternal, but it's it's a really obscure kind of argument. But that my point being, I, I still think that we should look at or we know who God is through the person of Jesus Christ in his flesh. So I wouldn't want to maybe would, or I wouldn't want to say that let's separate out the emotion from uh, the rational part. And that's I mean all the only explanation I can give is that that's how I can identify with God best, uh, is through my my humanity.
2: Well, um,
0: and so, I mean, so I'm not saying that it would be wrong to take a platonic tact. Um, I would just, that's just one way to go. I find it more compelling as an understanding of who God is through His incarnation.
3: Well, and obviously if um, God... You know, thought it through and thought it was going to be hey, this is going to be a good idea, this incarnation thing. I think that that's, that's an important thing, that he communicated something to us through the incarnation by saying basically, it's important that I relate to you as a rational animal, which yeah, that's the Aristotelian way of thinking about it, but um, it, this idea that yeah, you do, you do have emotions, and uh, that's I, yeah, I mean, I would say a lot of them come from the animal side of you, in that sense, in the, in the sense that you are physical. But similarly, these emotions obviously can be found in God. Um, we often like to say things like God is love and identify Him with His attributes in, in a poetic way sometimes, in which case, yeah, I would say, of course, some of these things are expressed, and I think they happen to be expressed in us. Um, some people might think that there's a different part of the soul that completely does that job, but yeah, obviously. You know, part of it's physical and part of it's also an immaterial self. But I'm often tempted, at least personally, to always think of God through the lens of what I studied. And so I always do think of it. and I do, most of the time, uh, go to the God of the philosophers, to be honest. But, uh, yeah, it's important, and I think he communicated that to the incarnation.
1: I think the thing is, when you talk about animal, when you talk about feelings in the sense of animals kind of having feelings, That's distinctive to them. They don't have the capacity for abstract reason like we do. Abstract reason is what makes us what we are. And, and And I just want to clarify, and you know this, you know I believe this, I do think God is rational. I think he's very rational. I think he's way more rational than any of us. The animals have feelings, yes, but the thing that distinguishes them is they have nothing to check their feelings. They are, in fact, always responding by what they feel. That's a part of what they are, or that's that's mostly what they are. We have that. We are animals in one sense, right? That is a, like, we are of the animal kingdom. We have feelings. That is a part of what we are. But we have a check on that, right? So when you get angry, you have something in you that says, okay, is this anger appropriate? Is this right? And if it is, then it's like you have a gatekeeper that says, let me open up this gate and let some of this anger come out But I need to be careful, because I need to not let it come out, you know, flowing out in a way that's inappropriate and wrong. It is right that we have feelings, but the feelings and the reason, the reason provides a check to the feelings, right? Well, I think God is just that to the ultimate degree. He has a perfect emotion, he has a perfect reason, and his reason is going to completely uh, dictate what the proper use of his feelings are, the proper expression of his feelings are. Does that kind of answer your question? And we got to go, so... We, oh, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I just wanted to say that, that
7: I, I agree with yeah. uh, what you guys are saying. And for me, uh, like in the Old Testament, when you see David being called a man after God's own heart, that always resonated to me. But so it's kind of difficult to kind of heard, you know, bridge what we feel, what we experience, with you know a lot of the rational and intellectual arguments. So, uh, yeah, it's great to hear you guys. No. Right. Sweet. So let's, uh, let's close in prayer.
1: Right? I got to open in prayer, which makes me. <laughs> oh. <laughs> you can add it recording, <laughs> <Like, laughs> father thank you so much uh just for this opportunity to get together to discuss um the truth lord to discuss things that are written in your word to discuss how these things have impacted the lives of your people and i just pray for every person in this room for us as well or just that you would increase understanding wisdom knowledge insofar as it benefits us and draws us closer to you and forms Christ in us. Uh, Lord, as we go our separate ways, I ask that you keep us safe and that you always be the thing on the forefront of our mind and on our lips. We love you, Father, and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. If you have any more questions, feel free to come free? up and
5: ask us. Uh, I was thinking the kingdom list. What do you
7: got, dude? Uh, the one that you made.
0: Thanks again for listening.